Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to The Dispatches podcast. It is great to be back with you again. It feels like it's been a while, doesn't it? And speaking of feeling like it's been a while, if you've missed the podcast but you want to make sure that you get your fill of the Dispatches podcast every single week, the good news is if you become a patron of this show at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia and you contribute $5 or more per month, then you will get access every single week to an exclusive patrons-only episode of the podcast. In other words, you won't miss out and it won't feel like a long time between drinks because you'll have a podcast guaranteed every single week. Some weeks I can't do these free-to-air episodes just with work schedule and everything else that's on my plate, but our patrons always get an episode every single week. And if we have months where we publish a free-to-air episode every single week, if you're a patron, you are still getting more bang for your buck because you are getting an extra four to five episodes of this podcast every single month. The link is in the show notes, patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. A huge thank you to all of our patrons. You guys are amazing. It's thanks to you that this episode was made possible. Last but not least, if you're new here, welcome please hit that subscribe button and that way you won't miss out on any new episodes. If you've been listening for a while and your platform allows you to do this, whatever platform you're listening on right now, please give us a rating, give us some stars and a comment or two. That all really, really helps the show. Right, with all of that out of the way, let's jump straight into today's topic of conversation. Is there a major socio-political upheaval underway? Spoiler alert, I'm going to tell you that I think there is. And there's a caveat to this. We'll get to this um, towards the end of this episode. But I I think there is. And what I want to do in this episode is I want to talk about a perfect storm of events. And realistically, by the way, there's probably more than I'm going to mention here today. There's other things that we could have talked about. But I was becoming aware as I was preparing the notes for this show that basically this episode would have been several hours long. And so uh, I had to pare some things back and sort of stick with some key points. And so I want to talk about, though, what I think are some phenomena that I think are worth noting. And there's a perfect storm of these things, events, uh, trends, um, demographics, all sorts of stuff that's sort of coming together to uh, reshape, I think, the current socio-political order and the norms that basically we have known for the last 70 years or so, particularly when we think about politics and society and leadership and how things sort of function, if you like, on a day-to-day basis and how things function every time there's an election and how leadership works. And I guess all the things that really we've taken for granted for quite a few decades now, I think those things um, are being reshaped. We're in the midst of something. And I think we'll only fully appreciate this, and I include myself in this, we'll only fully appreciate the shape of it and how it all unfolded when we look back on it or when future historians look back on it. But um, I think there is definitely a uh, an upheaval underway. 
Then after covering this perfect storm of phenomena, I want to talk about what I think the possible implications of this could be, or some of the possible implications of this could be, because again, there's lots. And then lastly, I want to end with a couple of points about what I think we need to do to sort of navigate all of this. So let's start by looking at this perfect storm of phenomena. And in no particular order, the first cab off the rank is the COVID phenomenon. We've, we've, we've been living under this for the last couple of years. We're on the tail end of it now. Some people are still clinging desperately to it. But the reality is that right from the get-go, COVID was a powerful, I think, reshaping agent. Uh, before we even got into policy responses, and we'll talk about that aspect of it in just a second, there is the fact that COVID really shook the world, I think, and uh, changed uh, our perhaps our false sense of security that we'd been clinging to for quite some time. It gave us a very stark wake-up call about our place in the world. Um, it was all of a sudden something arrived that we couldn't just apply a quick fix to. All of a sudden, uh, something arrived that posed a threat to large numbers of human beings. Now, percentage-wise, the fatality rate is very small. But when this thing sweeps across the globe and you've got no resistance to it because it's novel and it's new, it's going to hurt a lot of people. It's going to end the lives of a lot of people very quickly in a you know very short space of time. And it's the kind of thing we're just not to... Uh, we're not used to seeing or engaging with and we haven't engaged with in a while. And so I think there was that aspect of it. It also, I think, exposed some things about how we have been living. Uh, I don't think we've changed much, but ex it exposed some things about how we have been living. Uh, like, for example, um, the way in which we just quickly get on a plane and we find ourselves in another part of the world in a matter of hours that it's there's you know there's obviously a lot of things that are really positive and great about that but then there are also uh, some serious risks that come with that when you think about a, a new pathogen and how quickly and easily uh, it can spread around the world and there's no doubt that globalization and technology which in and of itself these technologies are not evil things but how um, they have also enabled uh, you know, a, a risk like this to become uh, rapidly uh, even more dangerous than what it otherwise would have been. So it's, it's there's a whole lot of things that we learned effectively. That we, it was like a, a, a moment of um, culture shock for us or for a lot of people, I think. And then what happened after that was then came the policy reactions. And regardless of what the motivations were of the different policymakers and bureaucrats who came up with and drove and insisted upon and with great authoritarian gusto enforced a lot of these policies, we've really had two solid years of regular overreach, authoritarianism, uh, of uh, you know our leaders treating people with uh, great infantilization, and when we weren't experiencing those kind of things, there were moments of clear ineptitude. And as I said, it's not, don't get fixated on the motivations. I think a lot of people say, oh, was it a global conspiracy? Was it a test run for something else? Uh, look, don't, don't ascribe to malice what is more likely to simply be just flawed, funky human nature. And you have... Uh, basically a group of people who desperately want to remain popular or stay in power, who are scared, who are afraid, 
And then all of a sudden it snowballs and, and you know, ineptitude and overreach happens on the back of that. It doesn't need to be any grand conspiracy. The fact is, though, that we've we've lived under this. Have a listen to this audio clip from Bill Gates. He's, he's uh, doing the tour at the moment promoting his new book. And this was a, a sit-down interview uh, that he gave uh, about, I think it was about two weeks ago. And have a listen to what he says in this audio clip about COVID. It wasn't until early February when I was in a meeting that experts at the foundation said, there's no way, you know, this, there's been too much uh, travel without diagnosis uh, for us to contain this. And then at that point, we didn't really understand the fatality rate. You know, we didn't understand that it's a fairly low fatality rate and that it's a disease mainly of the elderly, kind of like flu is, although a bit different than that. So that was a pretty scary period right. uh, where the world didn't go on alert, including the United States, nearly as fast as it needed to. Now, let me replay for you again the key moment in what he has said there. It's the statements he's actually made about COVID and the actual threat of COVID. Have a listen again. And then at that point, we didn't really understand the fatality rate. You know, we didn't understand that it's a fairly low fatality rate and that it's a disease mainly of the elderly, kind of like flu is, although a bit different than that. Now, what's fascinating about all of that is that here you've got the situation where Bill Gates is saying things that are absolutely true and that there was strong evidence for not long after we started going into lockdown and we became more aware about what COVID was. And rightly so, I think, initially, we took the precautionary approach because we didn't know. There was great uncertainty. China had lied. There was a lot that was unknown, and it looked a lot more serious than what it has actually turned out to be. Now, that's not to downplay the seriousness for those who have been affected by COVID in serious ways, including the most serious outcome of all, which is to lose your life. But it is not as serious and as deadly as we initially thought it might have been. And there was evidence for that, though, that was cropping up within months of COVID arriving on the scene. But there was an authoritarian, fear-based mode that we all just went into. And so it was basically, it was labelled as disinformation. It was shut down. It was censored. And here is Bill Gates saying things that just months ago would have had him accused of spreading disinformation. Or maybe not him, we'll talk about that factor in just a second, but other people certainly would have been accused of spreading disinformation. A few months before that, you would have been accused of being a, a deadly psychopath who didn't care about human beings and just wanted them to die. And that was the extreme nature of how people were treating and reacting to information. And here he is saying these same things now, and no one bats an eyelid. It's no longer disinformation. He's no longer being censored for saying these things. Now, to be fair, Bill Gates, right from the get-go, was Mr. Pandemic. I'm not sure why. He was one of our Mr. Pandemics. And what I mean by that is that he was one of a very tiny number of people, globally speaking, who literally could say probably whatever they wanted to about the pandemic and who had a seemed to have a, a place of authority in all of this. The media would uh, hang off every word. You know, they were directing traffic. 
um, for whatever reason, this guy was one of the Mr. Pandemics and he had the ability. I mean, he's probably one of only two or three people who could open his mouth and speak about COVID and get absolute global media coverage for that. But here's the thing. He probably could have said what he said in this interview clip I've just played to you. He probably could have said that a year ago, and it wouldn't have been too much of an issue for him. There wouldn't have been too many consequences for Bill Gates to say that. But if someone like Joe Rogan had said that, or I don't know, pick any other person you want to, almost any other person, they would have been accused of disinformation, of being dangerous, of being a danger to public safety, all that kind of stuff, right? But there's something about this. It's, it's such a fascinating thing to hear that clip. And to it, it, what it does for me is it's not so much about what he's actually said. It's about what he said there and how that speaks to the, the cultural, really the, the sort of moment of crisis we've been living under and how disordered things actually became. That what he said there, which is very reasonable, by the way, and there was lots of evidence for very early on, but how that would have had him just months ago censored, or probably not him, but other people censored and accused of spreading disinformation. Um, and also how there's this guy who just wields this ability to just, within reason, I guess you'd say, but to effectively to speak his mind on COVID when everyone else was told, no, you can't speak your mind on COVID and you're dangerous and you're anti the science and all that kind of stuff. It's such a bizarre thing. Now, there's lots of implications for all of this and and how this plays out in our society. I think for governance in general, there's going to be some flow-on effects. There's behaviours that have been learnt here by leaders and bureaucracies that are not healthy things, and it's hard to shake those kind of things. But I think another big factor in all of this is basically for a lot of people I, I'm encountering and talking to, there's a high degree of personal re-evaluation going on, I think. What is really important in life? What have I been doing well, what was I doing and how was I living in the lead up to COVID in this sort of very alarming moment where, particularly in the early stages, it was a, a confrontation with the spectre of death. Now, it didn't turn out to be anywhere near as fatal as first thought, thank goodness, but it still, it was that spectre that was there at the very beginning and it, it hangs around and it, it really was present, ever present this fear in particular, and, and for a lot of people, it's definitely caused a sort of re-evaluation. And there's no doubt, I think, that that factor is one factor that, that sort of plays a part in the sort of perfect storm of, of upheaval that we are going through. Next cab off the rank is just economics in general. And I guess there's lots of ways you could look at this. There's things like here in New Zealand, the, the cost of housing. It's just off the charts. It's insane. And it's not... Uh, proportionate to uh, wages that people are earning. It's extremely um, negative in the impact that it has on a society, on a culture. Uh, people can't own their own homes. We know, and we've known this for quite some time, that home ownership is actually quite important because it allows you to put a stake in the ground and to really, you, you basically you become a stakeholder in a community. But if you're just renting, you don't have that same degree of stakeholding, you don't have that same degree of security uh, underpinning you. Uh, there's all sorts of things that, that that play out and that are very important with home ownership and why home ownership, I think, matters. But it's also then for people to try and secure for themselves a home, it's the absurd amounts of money that they actually have to come up with and then keep coming up with to 
keep their home and the impact of that on families and your ability to even start a family, let alone be present enough with your family instead of spending uh, large swathes of your time and both mum and dad working their backsides off just to try and pay for something as straightforward as a house. Now, that's one aspect here in New Zealand. Other places, there's the cost of living crisis. We've got a bit of that going on here, but I, if I'm understanding things correctly, in other countries, it's uh, it's even more of a challenge. I think generally there is a growing sense, and it's been growing for a while before this all kicked in, that something is not right when it comes to human economics, that there is the whole um, disparity between the haves and the have-nots, and that seems to be growing. There's lots of people who are trying to analyse this who are far smarter and far more adept in the economic realms than I ever will be. And a lot of people, it seems, are talking about that sort of destruction of the middle class, this idea that you've got a, a group of haves who control a lot more of the wealth and resources than previously, and the group of have-nots is growing. Um, and the, the sort of the middle classes who uh, who sat in the middle of all of that are, are diminishing. There's also some good commentary I've read that talks about the notion of uh, mobility. Financial mobility is something that is a lot uh, harder to access these days. It's been destroyed in a lot of places. So what what they mean by that is that once upon a time, if you were in a situation where financially you weren't that well off, if you were willing to throw yourself into work, you could, you know, you could get a good job and you could start to climb the ladder. It didn't mean that you'd necessarily get to the top of the ladder. Most people don't get to the top of the ladder, but you could actually, uh, there was mobility, the, an ability to actually move yourself into a better financial situation. But it seems that's extremely hard to do today for a lot of people for all sorts of different reasons. And there's a sort of a growing sense that something's not right here. It also seems clear at a political level that at the moment anyway, neither side of the political aisle, and I think this is true in a lot of countries in the West, they don't really seem willing or maybe they don't seem capable of addressing this. Things that could be done, that maybe should be done, would take leadership courage and not being done because the emphasis in politics now is really on PR-driven politics and popularity. Whatever you do, retain your power and do whatever you need to do to keep hold of power. And in a democracy like ours, we'll talk more about democracy in a minute, but in a democracy like ours, in Western democracy, that means you have to actually keep the powerful people happy and you have to keep as many people happy as you possibly can. And so that really means don't rock the boat. Don't rock the boat. <laughs> and and so there's a there's not really much action to try and address these. And I'm not talking about crazy communism here, because that's not me. I'm not a crazy communist. But action that could be taken, re-evaluation, and, and it, it just sort of seems we entrench into our tribalism on this particular issue. But I don't think it's it can't last. It really can't last. You can't have a society with a growing group of people who are just effectively wage slaves or possibly not even that and who are clearly shut out and a shrinking and small group of people who, um, I guess you say, are living the life of Riley or having a good time on the pig's back. Um, it's just, it's, it's basic human nature. It's reality. Sooner or later, there will be a clash over all of this. Please, God, don't let it be a horrible one. Let it be a moment where we learn first, fix the problem. Uh, we'll fix 
parts of the problem. You can never solve the problem in its entirety. When Jesus said the poor will always be with you, he was saying a very, very prudent thing. Um, But what you certainly can do is, I think, keep a balance in place within the economic system so that it doesn't ever get out of kilter. And at the moment, uh, I don't think we're achieving that. Um, I think another thing here, too, is and forget about the sort of the whole debate about the haves and the have nots. And we often hear about this growing inequality and all these sort of economic phrases and slogans that get thrown around about economics and and, um, where people are at personally in society, financially and all the rest of it. I think a a big factor in this that I think very regularly gets overlooked is the loss of human activity, that the loss of this idea that human activity should be at the service of a greater transcendent good or a greater transcendent moral order. And what I'm talking about here is the erosion of and the loss of religious belief in the West. And what it does is it has a whole lot of knock-on effects that we never at the time think will happen or think would happen, but are happening. And I think there was a sort of this arrogant hubris that you'd just go from religious belief to belief in nothing and effectively to a belief in liberalism where individuals would just make up their own truths about the universe and the world and who they are and who God is and whether God's even there or not and all that kind of stuff. And and you could sort of institutionalize that and have a culture built on that. You can't because you can't have a culture without a unifying uh Um, transcendent truth that brings that culture together as a whole. A whole lot of liberal individuals is not a culture. It's not a society. It's just a whole group of liberal individuals doing whatever they want to and thinking however they want to and acting however they want to. And so when you've got this uh, loss of religious belief and loss of a vision of the transcendent and human activity as being, or, you know, the ideal for us, like I say this as a religious believer myself, as a man of faith, as a Christian, that my human activity is at the service of a greater transcendent good. It's it's, it's at the, the service of a greater transcendent moral reality and a moral order that I uh, understand and know through uh, the doctrines of Christianity and the Christian faith. And so I... I am um, when I engage in all sorts of various activities, and so economics is one of these activities, I should think morally and act morally, right? Because my action should be at the service of a greater transcendent good, a, tr- a greater transcendent moral order. Now, without that, what you are left with is a vacuum, and as the old saying goes, nature abhors a vacuum, and it's very quickly filled with other things. And so really the only other options you've got without that transcendent higher order that your, uh, that your human order is um, subjugated to is you really are left with personal power and self-gratification and things like that. And so, you know, economics, my human activity becomes uh, activity for my own self-gratification or activity to gain more power. And I think we see a lot of this playing out in economics um, and it's, it's, it's wrecking a lot of havoc. Now, on top of that, cab number three, we have... Definitely a growing progressive authoritarianism. There's no doubt, and this this is not conspiratorial at all, but there's no doubt we have had, and we still do have, bad faith actors who are effectively running a fifth column, internally trying to undermine and destroy 
traditions and institutions that have been fundamental to the development of that sort of Judeo-Christian natural law vision of reality that shaped the modern West. And there's been an undermining of all of that in lots of different ways. And what's happened is as things have eroded, there has been a, a, a power vacuum of sorts and authoritarians have happily stepped into that. They've sort of stepped out of the shadows a little bit more, if you like. So previously it was a, there was a lot of behind-the-scenes sort of skullduggery going on, but now there's still that happening. But now it's more, it's out in the, uh, in the open. It's more out there, and the, the authoritarian nature of it is just growing, it seems, uh, more toxic by the day. There's so many issues you could look at, but but think about things like the the gender ideology and like the wholesale destruction of womanhood, because it's not really masculinity that's been affected by this. I mean, masculinity is affected in a knock-on way because you destroy gender and you embrace a lie that biological sex isn't real, that masculinity and femininity are not real things, uh, or that they're just social inventions. Then obviously, both masculinity and femininity are destroyed in that train wreck that ensues. But it does seem that it really has been more directly targeted at femininity and womanhood. And that's been so much more on the receiving end of all of this, or certainly it has been of late. And I think a big part of that is the fact that um, if you think about the question of power, you'd have to say that physical power and um, you know, just, just by virtue of the fact that men are stronger than females as a general norm. So there's been a there's always a power imbalance there and the call of masculinity that is virtuous and good is to take that power and put it at the service of others and put it at the service of those, in this case we're talking about females, who don't have the same uh, physical power as we might have. And again, if you subjugate your life to a transcendent moral order, then you recognize that you are obligated to act in that way, not to use your power for abuse manipulation, control, dominance. You know, you're called to use your power to give uh, more abundantly to others rather than to take from them uh, because you are in a position of dominance or strength. And so females have been, I think, on the receiving end a lot more of this gender ideology as you've had males who have stepped into this no- this notion of, and it really is just a, an absurdity, of, of trying to claim femaleness for themselves as biological males, and then exerting their power. And and we see this a lot played out in the whole sports arena, you know, the whole destruction of female sports um, and what's going on there. But then there's also the young lives, the the victims, and it's a growing number now of victims, young victims, who experienced psychological confusion and bodily dysphoria and who have become the victims of an ideology which has tried to normalize their bodily dysphoria and say it's not a dysphoria, it's not psychological confusion, it's real, it's the truth. And then uh, you have this medicalization of that dysphoria. Uh, Here's some drugs, here's some scarification of your body through surgery. And and there's a whole list of victims. Uh, We're not really even appreciating yet. It'll be probably another 10 to 20 years before we appreciate fully, I think, or even begin to experience in a, in a much fuller way the seriousness of the, the trail of victims that that ideology has, has left. But along with that ideology, because remember this whole thing of, oh, you know, who are you to judge other people, live their lives the way they want to? 
there's a growing authoritarianism and absolutely a, a very progressive authoritarianism attached to that ideology. You must obey. You must bend the knee. You must do and think and say as we demand you do and think and say. There's things like cultural Marxism now as a regular feature in workplaces and you know workplace trainings and it seems it's becoming more and more speculative uh, that what is actually being trained or attempted to be trained into people or expected of people in workplaces. You know, the, the, the whole notion of um, your implicit, your inherent bias that you have that you didn't know you had and you don't actually think that way and you don't speak that way and you don't act that way, but it's still there just by virtue of perhaps your skin colour or um, your sexual orientation or your uh, biological sex, whatever it might be, right? This whole cultural Marxist um, dynamic of power and control and and uh, and undermining it and, and you know, the, the bourgeoisie versus the proletariat and the revolution that must happen to bring about the new epoch of greater equality, etc., etc. The education sector is rife with issues. Now, there are plenty of good teachers out there. We all know good teachers, but the the system itself, I think, is and the bureaucrats in particular, really have been captured by ideology. And that ideology is just so dominant and prevalent. You see it now in, in so many different places. Film and television are now regularly riddled with propaganda or even they're just outright bully pulpits. And it's it's just everywhere you look now, there's that sort of progressive authoritarianism and that condemnation of those who, they don't have to do anything. They don't have to harm anyone. They don't even have to speak out. They just, now it's getting to the point in some situations where you just refuse to uh, admit or, you know, you refu- refuse to give an assent of your will to a particular idea. You know, that, that puts you on the outer, and that's a growing trend, and it's, a, it's part of this perfect storm, this authoritarianism, this progressive authoritarianism that will, I think, absolutely lead to upheaval. There's a sort of cause and effect that happens in the world, and it seems to me that you have groups like in the States in particular, and we've seen quite a bit of this in the last few days, the the Antifa violence, and you've got these violent revolutionary groups. And in a situation where you've got a sort of a breakdown of the social order, you don't tend to have violent revolutionary groups like that who tend to just operate uh, with impunity. What eventually will happen if they persist long enough is that you will have an equal and opposite reaction that will arise. And there's always sort of pushback here. And then also the progressive authoritarianism will tend to drive people away. It's becoming more clear. It's interesting looking at certain social trends and and seeing, and we'll talk more about this in a moment, but seeing how there is now amongst the youngest demographics a pushback against some of these uh, progressive ideologies that previous generations haven't pushed back against as hard. It's a sort of flow-on effect. It's, it's nature in action. It's... It's people saying, well, you've overstepped your bounds and, and people are effectively just getting fed up with things. Next is the issue of abortion. And this is the issue that just won't go away. It's something just that despite what pro-abortion ideologues want to insist, oh, no, it's all settled and no, we're moving forward and it's 
you know, the laws are changing and that's all good and we're progressing towards something better and they keep trying to tell themselves and us that myth. But it's not true. The issue won't go away. It's never gone away. The reason it won't ever go away is because the reality is you can't actually hide the fact that abortion involves the deliberate killing of an innocent human being. Every time there is an abortion, a human being is killed. And that human being is innocent, they are vulnerable, and they are killed by an abortionist. And you can't escape that fact. There's no escaping. In fact, it becomes more glaring with each passing month or year as our technology and scientific awareness grows about life in the womb and about embryology. We, in many ways, the way we talk about abortion today to me, seems more consistent with people two or three hundred years ago who might not have had any of the window into the womb that we have today and hadn't lacked all understanding and were ignorant and you know just were not in a, a strong place of awareness about life in the womb. But we've got all of that today, and it seems that we are more ignorant in our actions, ironically. But also there's a militancy that's growing and has been growing for a while, because the reality is that's the only way now for pro-abortionists to keep hold of what they have managed to obtain in the abortion arena, because it is just so glaringly obvious and inescapable. And so the only way you can keep control in that situation is to, you have to be militant to try and suppress truth and maintain control. And what we've seen with this Roe v. Wade draft decision leak that happened, what, almost two weeks ago now, 10 days ago, that, that, that leak has exposed just how extreme the pro-abortion movement has now become. It's actually insane. We've got groups attacking, targeting uh, churches in America over this. It's a very fascinating thing. It's been particularly Catholic churches, and it's interesting that our pro-abortion activists and militants decided that they would target Catholic churches. Now, here's the thing. The leaked Roe v. Wade draft had nothing to do with the Catholic Church. This was a Supreme Court document. It's a Supreme Court issue. But immediately... The militant, extreme nature of the pro-abortion movement manifested itself against Catholic churches. Now, other churches have been caught up in this, but primarily it seems they've been the big targets. It's interesting, they recognized them as their enemy. And we've seen a host of other things, the extremes that they're just on display, that people feel so... um, confident to publicly, and high, we're talking high-profile people here as well, to say what are clearly extreme, frightening, and at times truly obscene and reprehensible things. Here's an example from just a few days ago. It's uh, from a reporter called Caroline Riley. She's on Twitter. She's a blue check mark. so if you're on Twitter you'll know that a blue check mark is quite an important thing. You're one of the uh, the elites. You're one of the people who's made it, you know. You're you're official. It's it's like the blue check mark on Twitter is is, you know, it's a special class of person. So, she's not on the fringes here. She's she's uh, she's in the establishment if you like. She's a journalist by trade. And here's what she tweeted a couple of days ago. So, the New York Times tweeted the following. 
The headquarters of an anti-abortion group in Madison, Wisconsin, was set on fire Sunday morning in an act of vandalism that included the attempted use of Molotov cocktails and graffiti that read, If abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. Now that in and of itself is absolutely shocking. Think about that. Draft ruling from the Supreme Court is leaked. And then in response to that, you have a a group of pro-abortion militants who try and throw a Molotov cocktail at a building and they, um, they set fire to the building, obviously trying to burn it down, and then they spray paint graffiti which, you know, you don't need to read between the lines here. If abortions aren't safe, then you aren't either. We are going to come for you with actual physical violence. That's the insanity of the pro-abortion movement on display right there. Remember the whole silly sibyl with the chestnut of, of you know, pro-lifers, the anti-choice people who want to blow up abortion clinics. Remember that, the whole violent pro-lifer um, caricature. It's, it was always an absurdity. You have these tiny minority of incidents over the entire decades-long history of the modern pro-life movement where you've had people who have done or who have said crazy things. But despite that fact, this caricature of the abortion clinic bomber remained the norm for a lot of people in the way they talked about the pro-life movement. And that was sort of just People thought of that as a normal part of the discourse, you know, around the dinner party table. Here you have people actually engaging in widespread and very serious threats of violence and all sorts of other things. And these same people are now applauding what's going on. And this lady, Caroline Riley, is an example of this. And she's not the only one. I've seen so much of this online over the the past 10 days or so. So she retweeted that New York Times story about a shocking incident involving violence and serious threats to people's well-being. And she retweeted it, and she said this in her tweet about that incident. More of this. May these people never know a moment of peace or safety until they rot in the ground. That is unbelievable. I mean, that is the true face of extremism. There's just no getting away from that. Now, yes, There's a high probability that this woman has actually had abortion somewhere in her own backstory. And so there's an emotional wound that she's reacting out of. It's quite possible. And this was the big lie of abortion. I mean, there's lots of other lies associated with abortion, but there was a big lie about the practice of abortion. And that was the false claim that you can have an abortion and you can institutionalize it that people could have abortions and it would have no effect. When in actual fact, the truth is, there is a a great wound that comes upon a person, a couple, a family, who is visited by the darkness and evil of abortion. Uh, As one commentator wisely once put it, an abortion doesn't end motherhood. What an abortion does is now makes a woman the mother of a dead child who was killed by an abortionist. And she was involved in some way in that process. And so you can imagine all of the guilt and wounding and suffering and the great burden 
that that brings. And then you live in a culture that says, no, no, post-abortion grief is not real. Uh, it's no big deal. Celebrate your abortion. Shout your abortion. And so what happens? You have to repress all of that brokenness. And you try and sit on it and do all these other things to try and mask the reality of what abortion really is. It's just, I mean, it's just a tragic, you want to talk about a looming tsunami, that is a looming tsunami, I think. The, the, the growing number of females who have been wounded by abortion but have been taught to bury that wound deep. And it, it doesn't get any more serious, I don't think, than that kind of a wounding. And it's going to manifest itself somewhere. The other thing, of course, about abortion is that once you institutionalize it, and this is why I think we shouldn't be surprised by this extremism, because what you've done is you've institutionalized and normalized the act of deliberate killing of innocent human beings and human beings who are at their most vulnerable. And I'm not at all surprised by a movement, a pro-abortion movement, that is absolutely morally okay, and not just morally okay with killing innocent human beings, but they actually celebrate that. And I'm not, a, I'm not at all surprised that a movement that has that as its fundamental underpinning is also a movement that is okay with things like firebombings and physical threats and even acts of physical violence against others because once you're okay with killing innocent human beings, then other acts like firebombing a building, that's child's play in comparison. Telling lies, that's child's play, right? Slandering people, attacking people, that's child's play. Once that is your, you know, that's the foundation upon which your house is built. There was already before this a growing unease, I think, with the new extremes of pro-abortion politics. Over the last five to ten years, I've noticed as someone who is in the pro-life movement and in the pro-life space and has been solidly for many years now, one thing I've noticed over the last five to ten years or so is the growing number of people who I am actually surprised by who have high-profile celebrity types, liberal types, who have out loud expressed unease with abortion ideologies and abortion laws that have come across the table or have been enacted in different places. There already was. I think uh, previously, for a lot of people, there was this notion that abortion was a necessary evil and you had to tolerate this necessary evil. Now, I personally would disagree with that, but I understand that way of thinking about the issue. But what the pro-abortion movement and its authoritarianism has moved into now is, no, 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 abortion is not an evil. Abortion is actually a good. The people who say that you shouldn't kill your children before they are born, they're the evil people. They must be suppressed. They're dangerous. We're the good guys. Abortion is good. In fact, it's not only good, it's something so good that you should celebrate it. You should have a festival to celebrate it. And th there's no doubt for, for a lot of people that creates a great unease about the extremes of what's happening here. And so that's before we've even seen some of these extremes playing out now in the United States. Now, of course, this is all riddled with so much hypocrisy as well. Remember, we've just come off the back of the COVID phenomena where my body, my choice was roundly uh, rounded upon. And people said, no, 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 you can't do whatever you want to with your body because if you want to do something with your body that's going to harm another human being, you shouldn't be doing that with your body. That's not morally right. And that principle, by the way, is absolutely true. Your bodily autonomy is not absolute. It doesn't extend to you doing harm to the well-being 
of another human being and saying, well, I'm just exercising my bodily autonomy, right? There's a reason why we have limitations on these things, and these things are not absolute. It's because we live in community and we live in proximity to other human beings. And so when you have human beings who live in close proximity to each other, eventually you're going to have a clash of interests and in that situation in order to avoid the crisis of the strong simply dominating the weak, so might makes right, you have moral order, you have moral norms, and you have things like human rights. And the idea there is that the vulnerable aren't just ridden right over the top of. You can't just do whatever you want to with your body and then say, ah, oh, it's bodily autonomy. right? It's, that's, it's a very true and important principle, which is ultimately why abortion is so fundamentally flawed. Because what abortion involves is the destruction of the body of another human being. A human being, they are wiped out of existence. All of their choices are deprived to them. All of their bodily autonomy is robbed from them. They do not consent. Unborn children do not consent to having their bodily autonomy destroyed. And so it's an absolute absurdity to have the situation of people running around saying, that my body, my choice, is a justification to destroy the body and the choices of another human being. It makes absolutely no sense. But there's all sorts of other hypocrisies associated with that. So for, for the COVID period, we've had this whole, you know, well, you can't do whatever you want to. We suddenly realize that my body, my choice is not morally sound. But then abortion comes back on the table with Roe v. Wade, and all of a sudden, oh, no, 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 my body, my choice is back on the table, baby, big time. There's no principles here. There's not a consistent moral framework at work here. It's pure arbitrary power and desire and self-gratification. What I want, I will defend with any words necessary, even if those words are contrary to words I was saying about another issue, because it's about what I want, right? And it's about power. So there's all sorts of hypocrisy uh, in, in, in all of this, the, the sudden rediscovery of sexual binary and womanhood and people, people who previously had been talking about, you know, um, this notion of sex and uh, gender as sort of social constructs who are now suddenly talking about women and females and women's rights and how important this is and this is a war on women. And it, it's just, it's, it's been quite a, a bizarre thing to watch. The other thing, too, in the midst of all of this is that really the pro-life movement, I think, is ultimately it's it's a new youth movement. It's And what I mean by that, there's lots of older people involved as well, but it is a youthful movement with a strong and growing youth presence everywhere. That's consistently the case. It's also a movement that's full of normies. <laughs> it just is normal people who just, you know, that they're ordinary, everyday, salt-of-the-earth type, sometimes even diamonds in the rough, but they're just normies. And that, that, you know, you don't, what, what's happening is on the other side, it's becoming clear. And the head of NARL, which is a big um, pro-abortion lobby activist group, very powerful group um, in America, the head of NARL went to the March for Life some years ago. And then afterwards, she wrote a famous op-ed in, I think it was the Washington Post. And she talked about how shocked and dismayed she was. She got on the train to go to the March for Life as a counter-protester and when she was on the train, she said she was surrounded by all of these young, vibrant, good-looking females who were all there as pro-lifers for the pro-life side. And she said in this op-ed, 
She said, at that point, I realized I was part of a, an aging post-menopausal militia. And it's very, very true. It's not just that, though. It's not just aging, but it's becoming more extreme. The normies are not flocking to, to the pro-abortion movement at all. And here's the key thing. I think one of the key things in all of this is this issue won't go away. There is a reckoning coming. It will come sooner or later. It might take some time, but it is coming. There's a reckoning that will come on the the immorality, the grave injustice that is abortion. It's inescapable. And Roe has really, that the, the leak around Roe v. Wade has really highlighted that that moment is absolutely coming and possibly is closer than than a lot of us probably would have thought previously. Pro-abortion activists and politicians were saying, no, 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 it's, it's settled and it's in the past and it's all this and it's all that. It's not a big deal. Well, turns out, no, they were actually wrong. Uh, the next thing that's in this perfect storm is that there is a generational change that is looming. It's just, this is inevitable. It's the turning of the tide. You can't push back against this. People get old, they die, new people come along and replace them. And so it's the nature of the cycle of life. And so that generational change, though, I think is, well, no, I think it is looming in a big way. It is coming, and it's a lot closer now than what it was previously. And so there's a new, younger generation coming through, and there's lots of interesting things going on there. It does seem clear that there's some interesting questions around you know, that traditional idea, there was a, a song that I used to listen to that had the lyric in it, we want more than the wars of our fathers. In other words, their battles are, are not our battles. And I, I think I get a sense of that, that previous generations who assumed that they had secured for themselves some sort of, particularly I think in the progressive space, some sort of progressive lasting legacy, it might not actually be as lasting as they think. Because a new generation comes in and just says, oh, it's not our battle. Um, I think also that new generation that is um, stepping up and moving into a, a place of greater prominence is many of them have been the victims of these bad ideologies. They were on the receiving end of them, and that changes their view of it. It's very easy to be pro a particular ideology, you know, when you're on the cusp, we're on the right side of history, we're, we're going to change this thing, baby, you know, and, and this was a great victory for us. But it's a, a lot harder to recruit people to those ideologies if those ideologies have then resulted in a lot of casualties and a lot of harm, you know, so people have actually seen it. It's a lot harder to get on board with a, you know, a bad deal after you've made the bad deal and you're living with the fruits of it, the experience of it. It's a lot easier beforehand. You know, a salesman can convince you of anything up front, but generally speaking, you're probably not going to go back a second time. There's also a growing anti-progressivism amongst young people. Now, let's be clear, this is not conservatism. There is youthful conservative stuff going on as well, but there is a much bigger anti-progressivism amongst young people. It's fascinating to see this trend playing out. And I think there's different things at play. Part of it is probably that sort of um, model of youthful rebellion, which has become normalized uh, over the past 50, 60, 70 years in the West. And these people that they are pushing back are the power brokers. They're pushing back against them. They are the dominant power brokers, and they tend to be quite authoritarian in their approach. And so young people are sort of perhaps 
imitating that youthful rebellion against the system, you know. Don't let the man hold you down, man. <laughs> so that they're pushing back against that. But there's also, I think, just in general, there is a sense, you know, part of that possibly is some of these people are the victims of these ideologies. Uh, a lot of them, I think, are starting to have moments of um, there's enough voices out there now which are actually challenging the status quo. Uh, and also the evidence is becoming clearer by the day that something's not right. There are voices challenging the status quo. And so young people are listening and considering things uh, a bit more deeply and a bit more differently. And so there's a definitely there's a growing anti-progressivism amongst young people or a lot of young people who are just disinterested in progressivism, even if they're not part of that anti-progressive push. It's quite common to see them ridiculing. And there's lots of different reasons for that. We could probably have a whole podcast dedicated to that question and that issue. Um, but, uh, you know, that general sort of perhaps cynicism and um, disinterested sort of apathy that comes with having a sense of there's not much point or, you know, what sort of legacy have I been left with? Why would I be interested? <laughs> you know, um, and so that's probably a big factor in this. The people just just disinterested in, in general with um, progressivism. It's not, again, this is, we're not seeing a resurgent in youth conservatism. That, I mean, that's also happening, but it's not that suddenly people are becoming um, conservative-minded. It's just this strong anti-progressivism. There is also a, a civil war brewing within homosexuality. It has been looming for a long time. Um, it's something I've been following sort of on and off with interest for the last 20 years or so and reading different scholars and academics and others talking about this and these internal debates. And it's interesting, the history of the, the whole homosexual activism movement and uh, even in the early days, and I only realized this recently reading an academic work about this, the, the um, hatred and, and animosity between the... Uh, lesbian groups and the homosexual male uh, groups, and yeah, that, that just it was interesting. There's, there's sort of always been this tension, if you like, but really, what's happened of late is it's, gosh, it's um, the the, the extremes that have become normalised into homosexual activism, and it's not really surprising because you sort of build a foundation, then you're going to well, you sow certain seeds, you're going to reap certain fruit. It's sort of, it's inevitable. And you've got people like, this is a tweet just a couple of days ago from Blair White. Now, if you don't know who Blair White is, Blair White is actually transgender, male, identifies as female, does the whole thing, but who is very much, I, I would call Blair one of the anti-progressive movement thought leaders, if you like. And this is what Blair White tweeted out just a couple of days ago. I'll never forgive the LGBT community for allowing the slippery slope argument I grew up hearing from Christian conservatives to actually come true. And really interesting. It's such a fascinating tweet to me because I think Blair has rightly identified that the LGBT activists and agitators and ideologues have actually caused this. They've, they've created, they've, these outcomes are not incidental. They're not just accidental things that have happened. Oh, how did that happen? These things have a cause. And Blair has rightly identified 
the cause. It's interesting, though, that there's still a frustration there that those damn Christian conservatives, you know, um, it's it's almost, but it's not quite at that next point where you accept and and admit that maybe those Christian conservatives, despite uh, the fact that maybe they didn't go about things in yesteryear the best of ways and maybe the they had their own faults and foibles, and I think there's probably things we could critique for sure, but there was also truths that they actually represented. Even if they didn't represent them as well as they could, there were truths underpinning what they were saying that were real, that were objective, that were inescapable. And as the old saying goes, Mother Nature is a cruel mistress, and you just can't cheat your way out of that. And, um, yeah, it, it, so so there's this sort of growing anti-progressivism. I mean, to, to even hear sentiments like that expressed, it, it's clear that there's there's things brewing here that are, are more than just unease and disagreement. Another chap on Twitter, different tweet, uh, a couple of days before that even, tweeted the following. Who gave the TQ+, plus? so trans queer plus I guess the talking stick on LGB and women's rights there is definitely something brewing here that I don't think we've seen the last of and I don't think is going to go away quietly again it's another abortion moment there is a there is a reckoning you you can't disassociate yourself from the truth in such a dramatic and stark way and not expect that sooner or later the chickens will come home to roost. You, 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 you know, you ring the bell, the bell will toll. And we've sort of been living under a lie that we get away with these things. Next in this perfect storm is the issue of major institutional distrust. Now, politics previously there was always that trust question around politics and politicians. It's It's been there for decades. It's been a long time since people had uh, a deep and abiding and unshakable trust in political leaders. It, it, it's, it's been a long time. But what's happened now is other institutions have been caught up into this crisis of institutional distrust. And you've got things like, for example, the media now. The media is a profession that is an absolute crisis. It has a major crisis of trust. And I would say rightly so because of their behavior. And ironically, and I've never understood this, why more people inside the media don't seem to actually want to recognize that there is a problem. Instead, they're still on that phase, by and large, the majority, of blaming outsiders for their problem. Oh, it's these silly people, it's these right-wingers, it's the alt-media, it's the conspiracy theories, it's the social media. But not once do they stop and ask, maybe we're behaving in a way that does not engender trust in the general public or erodes trust, by and large, amongst the general public. And the media, by the way, is actually quite an important institution because of the role that it's supposed to play, as the great Edmund Burke would say, as the fourth estate. It's, it's supposed to provide a, a role that is uh, uh, about accountability. You can't have that if people don't trust you. It's just that simple. The church and churches have been caught up in this. The abuse crisis, 
that affected initially the the big uh, unfurling or pulling back of the curtain and exposing the crisis was within the Catholic Church, but it's affected other churches as well, and there are other types of crises that are affecting other churches as well. Uh, I think one of them in general is that the church, the internal crisis where the Christian church in the West has just lost its voice. It's become like the cowardly lion who doesn't know how to actually stand in front and represent goodness, truth, and beauty in the public square. By and large, there are exceptions, but they are exceptions because they're, you know, they're notable exceptions, and we notice them. They stand out. It's not the norm anymore. The voice is, is muted, absolutely muted, for all sorts of reasons. But that's one of the things. That's an internal crisis within the church. There's a loss of confidence or willingness to actually be a strong voice in the public square. But for for lots of different reasons, uh, trust in the church has eroded. Um, there's issues around policing. Uh, after COVID, science uh, is on a downward slide, or scientists, if you like, or the scientific institutions and the establishment that has been sort of built up around the practice of science is definitely, I think, on a has taken a, a, a pummeling uh, after COVID and what sort of went on there. There's a strong sense, and I think rightly so, for a lot of people that there's been bureaucratic capture of institutions and bureaucracy in places where it doesn't belong. And one clear place where you definitely see this, one place where it's possibly a little bit more subtle but is extremely powerful is in the political arena because we tend to see the figureheads, the politicians, a lot. We hear from them, the media fixates on them. But what we, I think, often miss today is in actual fact there's an army of policy makers and bureaucrats who work and actually do the content creation, as all the cool kids say, while the figureheads are, you know, they're taking credit for it or they're getting blamed for it. But really, so much of the control is wielded by the people who actually, the bureaucrats who, who set the policy. But there are other places where it's becoming clearer. You see this within a lot of churches now in the West, that bureaucracy has captured churches. And bureaucracy is an absolute killer of creativity. It is a killer of evangelistic zeal. If you've seen the movie Office Space, and it's not something I'm necessarily recommending, but in that movie there's a character who's the boss, and he's this sort of typical bureaucratic managerial type who who drones at his employees and he literally turns up at one guy's cubicle and and he says yeah I'm gonna need you to come in on Saturday and fill out those TPS reports you know it's this it's it's such a personification and embodiment I think in a perfect way of what bureaucracy does it just it it kills creativity it kills the spirit it kills missionary outreach zeal, I think. And and you, you see so many churches reduced to uh, effectively property portfolio managers and and the, the sort of the heart of what should be going on is missing. Um, so the, there's all sorts of stuff here that's happening to, to erode the value of and trust in the institutions. There's a really good reason why ideology built on the rejection of truth and meta-narratives has gained such a foothold. That ideology, obviously, is cultural Marxism, critical theory. It's one of its key tenets is the idea that you can't trust meta-narratives. They're not reliable. 
It's why they write the way they do. It's why there's this anti-science bent there. It's why religion is not trustworthy. It's why government is not trustworthy. There's, there's a reason, though, why that ideology built on a principle of rejecting objective truth and meta-narrative has gained such a foothold. And that is because a lot of people have looked at institutions and they have had a growing unease or even growing distrust or even outright hostility because of how they feel about those institutions and what's actually been going on. The, the critical theory movement actually sprung up in the wake of uh, the First World War and then really in a big way after the Second World War as well, this sort of this utopianism that was promised by the Industrial Revolution and the Enlightenment, it all very quickly unravels with the barbarism, in particular of the First World War. It, it's sort of all of a sudden there's this shocking reality here and so you get a group of thinkers who start saying, well, um, none of this is trustworthy. And so they start... Um, pushing back against it with their own ideology and their own set of ideological flaws. And it's, it's no, I don't think it's any coincidence that this, this ideology has actually managed to gain such a strong foothold today. And in fact, a, a position of dominance and power in today's world. There's a reason for that. It's because people do look around and they have a sense of, distrust and unease when they look at institutions. And by the way, nostalgia is not going to fix this. I know I've heard some people in some commentary, oh, it's just people have, you know, just got to learn to trust the institutions more. The institutions are not done. They've got to, you know, earn people's trust back. It's actually really hard to do. It is really, really hard to do. And I don't think that sort of nostalgic longing for a past where institutions did have greater trust and saying, well, if we just rebuild that, that will fix the problem. It's, I think it's a lot more complicated than that. People, and I think they have every right too, to look at a lot of institutions and say, well, we can't trust you anymore. And it's, it's not, I don't think it's realistic or fair to expect people to just say, no, I'll put all that aside and I will blindly have blind faith. Because they recognize something else is, they, they might not understand what it is, they might not be able to explain it, they might not be able to diagnose what the problem is, that they know something beneath the institution. Uh, if you like, the, the, the boat, the institution, is being steered in the wrong direction. And, and they know that the captain, something's not right with the captain, or the waters that they're on are not good. Um, and so why would you trust this boat or this direction that this institution wants to take you? And why would you trust the institution? Why would you get on board again if you have that? nagging lack of trust about where this is all heading. One thing I think uh, that a lot of people have failed to recognise is that you can't regain institutional trust, I don't think, in a culture where everything is so highly politicised like it is today in our culture. And there's lots of reasons for this, but the individual now is just so politicised and our life is so politicised. Even shopping, right? Buying goods and uh, going about the business of shopping is now highly politicised because corporations are now so invested in the political space. In a sense, they, they're the new grand inquisitors of all of this. It's just the most astounding kind of thing to see playing out. But the individual now is just so highly politicised. And there's lots of reasons for this. There's that the whole thing of corporate culture and the way that's crept in and, uh, and, and you know, the, the politicisation of corporate culture, but then also corporate culture itself 
Uh, modern corporate culture tends to be a political animal, and it's that that culture is everywhere now. You know, it's it's even church meetings, committee meetings become, um, you know, corporate politics, uh, bureaucracy. Bureaucracy is just in a lot of places now, and that really feeds this as well. Uh, democracy and 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 liberalism is a factor in all of this. In particular, I think we'll talk more about this in a second. But the the lies we tell ourselves about democracy, uh, liberalism, you know, the the idea of of um, the individual and autonomy and and all of that kind of stuff, and how what it does is that effectively then you 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 couple that up with democracy and democratic voting and all of a sudden you, the individual, like politics just uh, starts to consume everything in your life and and your decisions and your politics become just so thoroughly important. There's not a bigger transcendent good that you serve here. It's yourself and it's you and your vision of reality that's the most important thing when you buy into those ideas. Um, it's it's not necessarily that people intend this. It's just that's the fruit of this ideology. It's where it leads you, and of course, as I said, that the the lies that we tell ourselves about democracy, what I call the utopian lies, and hear me out because people say, "Oh, are you saying that you know you'd rather live under communism?" No, that's not what I'm saying at all. Uh, I definitely prefer to live under democracy than under communism. But we've got these utopian lies about democracy, that democracy is just this great, almost divine good. God gave us democracy, you know. It's the way it's meant to be. Nothing competes with it. It is the best thing ever. And we have this whole sort of mythos. There's certain errors that we believe about democracy, you know. The whole idea of your democratic franchise. Here's your democratic vote. This is a most powerful thing that you wield in your hands take it seriously. But in truth, it's not really that powerful at all. My individual vote is actually, <clears throat> my individual vote is actually meaningless. It really is the only way that you can actually secure outcomes you desire in a democracy is with a group. And then you have to have a big enough group. You have to have a majority to actually secure what you want to achieve. So it's no longer actually about an individual vote at all. Your individual vote doesn't wield any power. The only way a vote actually has power is if it's part of a larger group of votes. And it, there's the sort of this utopian lying that goes on. I think it's one of the big reasons why, particularly after World War II, what we saw was a lot of that um, exporting of democracy. It was really about politics versus politics. And when the Cold War set in, it was democracy versus communism and all these regime changes and various um, repugnant machinations that really led by America, but the Western world engaged in in other parts of the world after World War II, is that outworking of these um, utopian lies about democracy. Because, you know, if you believe it is the great utopia, then why the heck wouldn't you try and forcibly import it? into other countries, make them submit. You know, it'd be like, a, I guess, a doctor forcing a patient to take medicine that was life-saving. You know, you'd say, oh, yeah, well, I had to do it because it was saving their life. And there was that same mentality, I think, about democracy. It was this utopian thing. So we have to import it, even at the end of a gun, if we have to. As of late, things have shifted, I think, and what we're doing now is we're actually more in the business of exporting ideologies 
commentators I've been reading out of places like Africa have been talking about this for 20 years or more now, what they call the ideological colonization of the African people, um, whereby the West turns up with its sexual ideologies and its ideologies about abortion and its anti-family ideologies, and it tries to uh, colonize these countries with these ideologies. So now we're in the business more of, we've, we've turned some of these ideologies into our utopias. But democracy, as I said, still has this sort of um, almost mythical um, aura that we've given it. Now, as I said, I, I don't want to live under a, uh, a, a communist dictatorship or any sort of barbaric, tyrannical, evil regime, but would I, I rather or would I be happy living under a benevolent uh, a ruler of some kind, a benevolent monarch, uh, a, a benevolent oligarchy that was f- focused on and driven by virtue and, and which, um, which governed accordingly and which held truth and goodness uh, as sort of uh, put itself at the service of that? Well, of, of course I, I would be. Uh, I'd, I'd be more than happy for that. And in many ways, it would lift off all of the burdens of politicization because I wouldn't have to be obsessed with politics anymore. I could actually give my attention to other realms. And I don't mean here I am commentating about politics, but I mean just in my life in general where politics invades so much of our life and so much of everything we do now is just so politicized. It's all about what your political views are and what position you hold. It's, it's everything. The individual is just so hyper-politicized. And I think... That, that this contributes hugely to the whole crisis of institutional distrust. Because now everything, you like, like when you've been told to put on the glasses of politicization and filter everything through those glasses, even the institutions must be viewed in the light of this rampant politicization of the individual. And I, I don't think, I don't know if there's a way out of that. <laughs> I'm not sure there is, apart from a, a collapse and a rebuild with something else. Um, To me, I can't see a a clear pathway in that regard. And the next and final cab off the rank in this perfect storm is that we are effectively on a doomed ideological journey, or a lot of people are. Um, Ideas have consequences. Bad ideas, as someone famously once said, have victims. Um, Take your pick. Abortion. Euthanasia. I just read an article the other day about a an, a vulnerable elderly lady in Canada who can't get the financial support she needs for the type of housing she needs for a basic level of humane living that where her uh, disability or illness is not exacerbated, and so she has applied for and is progressing successfully along the pathway to an assisted suicide as the way out in Canada. Uh, so that that's the track we're heading for on that. Logan's run, here we come. Uh, gender ideology, the sexualization of children, widespread everywhere. Pick an issue. These, these things are symptoms of a doomed ideological journey. They are things that don't end well. They are manifestations of something internally that has, uh, has imploded, has, has corrupted. We have a, a loss of religious belief, and it's not just me here longing in some nostalgic way. Oh, wouldn't it be great if we had the good old days? 
because there were no good old days. There's never been good old days. There's never been a perfect time. But there's no doubt we have lost things that we once held dear and which were important contributors and guiding lights to our society. And a big part of this loss of religious belief in the Judeo-Christian tradition and even outright hostility now that we're seeing to this is we are attacking our own heritage and we are attacking and destroying our own patrimony here with this. There's so much that is fundamentally good and essential that we take for granted that Christianity gives to the lives that we live today in the West. And we are going to be in real trouble once the full reality of that sinks in, what we've actually traded away. There's a new generation who are coming through who have been raised without a foundation effectively. They have been sort of um, offered things like self-gratification, you know, your personal happiness is what matters, your self-esteem, you know, you're the most important person in the room, don't anybody else tell you you're not. Um, you know, and, and there has been pushback against some of that stuff, but the, the, these sort of ideas, and there's a mix of different ideas, safetyism is another one. Um, we saw a lot of this during COVID, this idea that we must save everyone. Um, yeah, it, it's just... It, there's so many different things that this generation is sort of uh, grappling with and they haven't been given a foundation upon which to stand, a firm, solid rock that they can plant their feet on and say, okay, I will navigate this now on this firm, solid rock. Um, they have been taught partial truths or even outright falsehoods about their history. That's becoming more of a norm. And again, that's really troubling because you're forming people to think about reality in a certain way that's not true. And that's going to have consequences. Uh, you Also, you can't think critically, I don't believe, without a transcendent reality as your baseline measure. What, what happens is, is without that baseline measure of a transcendent good that is greater than yourself. Now, some people, and they're not the majority, but some people I think have tried to compensate by going to things like, say, evolutionary psychology or perhaps different tenets of um, or ideas or things that are offered to them by science as their sort of baseline. But I would argue, and this podcast is not the place to get into it because there's a whole other episode in and of itself, that that's not enough. It's not enough. You, you need more than just that for a whole lot of other different reasons. But a lot of people, though, they just don't have a baseline measure. They don't have a transcendent reality that they think it's important that our lives must be conformed to if we want to be truly good people. And so you can't think critically without a transcendent reality, something that is greater than and exists outside of yourself and your own desires and your own thought life. Effectively, what happens for a lot of people is they get stuck in the superficial as a result. They're very vulnerable to that because there's nothing bigger or greater that has been formed into them. And it's, it's yeah, critical thinking. People talk about this. It's like a critical thinking today. Well, critical thinking really ultimately is about measuring. It's about taking an idea and measuring it against something you know to be true. But if you don't have the something you know to be true because you've been told that truth is nothing more than a social construct, then how do you have proper critical thinking? I don't think you can. I think in that situation all you have is a power struggle between dominant ideas that have power and those that don't. 
or that those that want to challenge the dominant ideas that have power. There is definitely a growing infantilization and I think a loss of basic life skills that it seems is afflicting a lot of people. And it's interesting why. It's not people are being lazy or anything. It's ironically we've got technologies that actually uh, move us further and further away from just the basic uh, bodily humanity of the human existence. Uh, one of the things I've done with my kids is whenever I have the occasion to do this, to actually change a tire, I bring my kids out and go through the process with them or every now and then I give them a little pop quiz about what is the process of changing a tire. That's an important practical skill that I want them to have and it's not just a skill that I want them to have because obviously there's this new trend now of you know, tires that uh, don't need to be taken off and replaced and we'll probably get to the point where the technology will just be it will be tireless. But there's something about that notion of being connected to the vehicle you drive in a, in a more concrete, tangible sort of way. You understand the mechanics of it, even in a small way like that. It gives you an appreciation, I think, that aids your skill as, as a driver of a vehicle, let alone at the moment, being in a situation where the, the norm is still that if you have to change your tire out, you have to change your tire out. So it's a good skill to have. But Ironically, technology is making some of these things, and also it's impeding upon our ability and our engagement with each other, just our, our communication and stuff like that. And, and there's sort of a growing loss of basic skills for a lot of people that maybe, I don't know, I don't know if we appreciate it as much as we should or think about the consequences of that. I think all of this basically leaves a lot of people moving forward extremely cynical uh, or... So, so if you've been a victim of this sort of doomed ideological journey that we're on, then you're going to be quite cynical about this. You, if you've, you've suffered at the hands of institutions that are not being lived out with virtue and you've got this great level of institutional distrust, you're going to be very cynical about stuff. Or you are going to be someone who's probably extremely vulnerable to manipulation by those who wield power and who are able to convince you because there's a lot more vulnerability now to that manipulation if you live in a superficial space or uh, you don't have a critical thinking mechanism available to you. It's, it's in many ways, I, I, I worry about the trend I see of, where, and, and, and this affects all of us, including myself, and it's very easy to get hooked into this, where people are disempowered by the current way in which life is being lived in the West as the sort of general norm. And then basically you end up getting hooked on self-gratification and comfort. And it's a hard cycle to break. It's a very addictive drug, comfort. Self-gratification is very, very powerful. And so you sort of have people being disempowered. They haven't been given their heritage and their patrimony and things that are actually going to give them a solid rock to plant their foot on and build some, uh, plant some deep roots and really make something of life and establish themselves in a meaningful way. And then you're sort of hooked on self-gratification and comfort, and it leaves you very, very vulnerable, uh, I would argue. So what are the possible implications of all of this? And like I said, there were other things, plenty of other things I could have talked about in this perfect storm, but he here's my thoughts on this. And, and, and this is the important caveat that I set up front that's important to remember. History is not a predictive science. History is not a, uh, a thing where you say, I predict this is going to happen based on the following inputs. History is not like that. It's a very, very interesting creature. And it's really only in hindsight. It's History is a science done through the rearview mirror. You look back and you see where you've come and what's happened and you observe. 
and you look at and you report on the things that have already happened. So that's me basically trying to say that even though I talk about or I'm about to talk about implications of this, the reality is that history is a slippery creature at times and things may shift and move in ways that I didn't see or I didn't appreciate or you didn't see or you didn't appreciate it. It may not play out the way we think. It's, it's just important to keep that in mind. We are, I'm not a progressive. I don't believe that history is on a trajectory and it's set. And if we just conform ourselves to it, we'll achieve this great utopian outcome. Or, and on the flip side of that is that, you know, history's on this negative trajectory and we just, if we, you know, don't conform, I guess, then X, Y, and Z will definitely happen. There's a great mystery to all of this. And as a man of faith, I'm going to say these moments where you see, I think, the hand of God moving in human history as well, we underappreciate too. So here's the thing about this, though. Never underestimate the shelf life of bad ideologies and cultural death spirals. I think there's a natural tendency to want to think, well, uh, these bad ideas are so bad that people people won't keep believing them. Surely they can't believe that. Oh, they'll, they have a short shelf life. They, they can't last. Such bad ideas, they really won't take hold. It's not really how human nature works. And in actual fact, they can last. And I think... Here's the key thing. Unless you actively reject the bad and and at the same time actively struggle for the good, you don't end up with the good. You don't just end up with the good by default. You've actually got to uh, you've actually got to work for that. You've got to work at it. And it's a it's a lifelong struggle. It's a struggle and uh, grapple with all of our imperfections and everything else in, in the process as well. No one is perfect at this. But you have to actively reject that which is evil that which is destructive, and you also have to actively build and fight for that which is good. Um, if you're not doing one of those two things, you're at risk. Um, it's not It's not enough to sort of just sit there in what, you know, I guess uh, sit on board something that was built for you, a foundation that was built for you, and not actually actively work to keep that in a good state of repair. The, the house will start to crumble around you. And I think this is especially true in a culture of comfort where, you know, these bad ideas can have very long shelf lives as long as we can sort of keep numbing ourselves with self-gratification and hedonism or in a culture of, of distraction where people are just so distracted trying to survive and make ends meet that they don't have time to really tackle much else or you've just got to toe the line to get that paycheck and it, it's, yeah, it's... The bad ideas in that sort of environment can last for a very, very long time. They have a long shelf life. Um, so <laughs> I think that's one of the implications of this, and we must never forget that. I think there is, as I said, there's a, there's a change coming. I don't know what shape that will, will, um, will take finally and, and what it all means in the world of you know the socio-political and how voting habits might change and the type of leaders we might see in future and how institutions might change. The reality is, though, that we're definitely on a, I think we're on a, um, a a moment of change. We're a changing of the guard, if you like, is happening just even in the natural. A lot of people that, for example, in my generation, were sort of in the leadership and powerful positions are now moving into their retirement phase of life. And you will see more new, younger people stepping up and even into roles within policymaking and politics. That's going to have an effect here. There's, you know, there's going to be outcomes, consequences that result from actions that have been engaged in. Uh, the, the One of the big things here is it'll be interesting to see a generation of people who 
who have not had the foundation. So the previous generation stood on the foundation and smashed it to bits, but they were still standing on the foundation. The next generation have been born into a world where there's nothing beneath them. Or what was there before was not beneath them. And so it'll be interesting to see that's where I think a lot of the effects of what have gone on over the last 30, 40, 50 years will be felt most keenly and the impacts will be seen most clearly. So what do we do to, to navigate all of this? Well, I think now is the time for courageousness and plain speaking. We just we need to actually lean into, uh, particularly if you're a person of, of faith, you're a person of the Judeo-Christian natural law tradition, you have some solid moral principles which underpin your life, now is the time for courageousness and plain speaking. Don't be afraid to actually say, well, actually, I disagree with you on that. And, and this is not a moment for stupidity or vacuous polemics. I'm just going to disagree for the sake of disagreeing or tribalism. You're on the wrong tribe. No, no, we need dialogue. But I think that's, again, that's part of the courageousness. You've got to fight for dialogue. Dialogue doesn't happen. And a lot of people, what happens is they get freaked out by the initial reaction. They bring up a, or they're engaged in a conversation about a controversial issue and they're too afraid to speak their mind because they're afraid of the reaction, the initial reaction. But as I often say to people, don't be afraid of first reactions. If you're willing to go past those and charitably have good dialogue with people, you'll find that you can actually have really fruitful discussions about quite serious and often very controversial issues. If you're willing to just say, okay, I recognize that there's probably going to be an initial sour reaction or a bit of a, a loud vocal pushback, but then if I can persist in charity, then I think that there's possibility, there's always hope for a dialogue to take place after the initial reaction dies down. And funnily enough, one of my rules of engagement is that if you want to get a result, you've actually got to get a reaction. So if, if someone has an engagement with you on an issue and they actually are passionate in the opposite direction to you, that's actually not a bad thing because it means that they will walk away having reacted to what you've said and, and there's, there's contemplation and so will you and you'll be thinking more deeply about things and it has the potential to bring both parties closer to the truth. If both parties just walk away without any reaction at all, it's like, oh, yeah, I've already forgotten what was said there. It was so bland. <laughs> it, it's, it's not, there is no chance to grow deeper into the truth, to be challenged or to challenge others to think more deeply about the truth. But what we don't need is stupidity or vacuous polemics. People say, oh, I'm so persecuted. But really, you know, there's two types of persecution. There's the, the persecution that is legitimate, that comes when you charitably and appropriately speak truth about issues and you're surrounded by people who disagree and you become the target of their viciousness. And that's something that is unjust. Then there is the persecutions we bring upon ourselves and we do dumb things. We, 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 are, we lack prudence. We, we don't really engage with charity. We try and shout people down. We get into tribalism, all that sort of stuff, and then we wander around saying, oh, I'm such a martyr for the cause. And it's like, well, maybe if we just weren't so uh, lacking in thoughtfulness in the way we engaged, we we might actually find that we're not such a martyr after all. And, and also we can end up with a bit more fruitful dialogue. I, I think we need to be drinking from deep wells of fresh water. I think that's more important than ever before. As I said, it can't just be vacuous stuff and slogans in response to slogans. That'll get you only so far. Might get you in the door, but it won't keep you at the party. Uh, I think about the abortion movement, the pro-abortion movement, riddled with illogical slogans. But you've got to re react and respond with deeper truths. You've got to bring some philosophy, some principles, some critical thinking, some proper thought to the table. 
if all you bring are slogans, pro-life slogans of your own or anti-pro-abortion slogans, so slogans that attack slogans, it's not enough. It'll get you in the door, but it, it, it doesn't keep you at the party. So we need to be drinking from deep wells of fresh water ourselves. We need to be constantly, um, I think, forming and deepening our own understanding and examination of these issues and so that we actually have something substantive and fresh to offer people in our engagement and dialogues with them about these issues. And I think, as I said, more important than ever before, when you live in a culture of vacuousness, it really is helping people to recover not just important truths, but even a deeper way of thinking about reality itself. I think we need to embrace our calling as 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 the hopeful outsiders. I'm talking here particularly to people who are part of that Judeo-Christian tradition uh, and whatever stripe or flavor. But we do need to embrace our calling as the hopeful outsiders. We are the people who are joyful, who are always have hope. Um, we are gentle as doves, but we are cunning as serpents. We are always ready to give an answer. And we're, we're, we're not actually trying to become part of the mainstream establishment. We don't want to be on the elite um, seats of power. It's, it's, that's not our calling. Our calling is to imitate and to live out the principles of goodness, truth, and beauty as given to us by Christ, as given to us in, um, in those sound philosophies and the scriptures and those important traditions that are part of our Christian tradition or our Judeo-Christian natural law tradition. I should say it might be just wider than just Christianity, of course, but but we are hopeful outsiders in that regard. And so we're not. Um, it's not about being successful. It's about being faithful to those things. And you just need to lean into that and accept that. If we're trying to win and sort of um, aim for popularity as our sort of our big thing, and that's our success market, if we're popular, then we've won the war of ideas. Well, I don't agree with that. And really history shows that anyway, recent history in particular, where in theory we had won the war of ideas, what, 50, 60, 70 years ago. But clearly it hadn't stuck. You know, it might have been popular, but was it deeply embraced? And and that's, popularity gets in the way of that, I think. Um, so just embrace that calling, lean into it, have courage, um, don't be worried. You know, there's there's bigger truths at stake. There's a bigger transcendent uh, reality that our human action should be ordered towards. Um, community, I think, is more important than ever before, even if it costs us something to obtain that community. Like you have to maybe sell a house and move to another uh, location in order to actually be around like-minded people and families and couples or whatever it is. But, but community, I think, is more important than ever before and a, and a culture of radical individualism and a culture that sort of leaves people bereft and stuck and isolated. And Think about something like euthanasia. Um, how important is community now for vulnerable elderly people to help protect them from the, the evils and the dangers of loneliness? It's now actually got a tangible, deadly outcome attached to it with euthanasia being legalized. Um, people who are with disabilities, for example, who are often sort of pushed to the side, you, that we need community. Uh, community is so important and essential for people when it comes to thinking about creative ways to try and battle against uh, economic hardship. There's there's lots and lots of reasons why community really matters. Community is important if you uh, if you are raising children and you find yourself um, concerned about the ideological swampland that we now are mired in. You can't just do it, mum, dad, and their kids against the world. You, you need community. You need other, and your kids in particular need to have peers around them who are um, 
who are from families that are looking at reality and seeing reality for what it is, just like you are. And and what it does is it helps them to realize, oh, oh my gosh, I'm not the uh, crazy sort of weird outsider kid here. Um, you know, this is actually quite normal and quite good. Um, refuse to be gaslit. There's a lot of gaslighting goes on. Trust your spidey senses. If something doesn't feel right, you know, so often we see this with the the issue of, for example, of sexualization of children, and then you get this pushback, oh, these people are, they're just bigots, and there's something wrong with you, and no, 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 you're reading this all wrong, and, and you're just a that, and you're just a that, and it's, it's this, this sort of series of accusatory gaslighting goes on. No, no, you're imagining it, basically. There's no problem here. You're the problem if you think there's a problem. Don't, don't buy into it. Just refuse to be gaslit. Just accept what is good, true, and beautiful. When things that are not pose a threat, don't be afraid to speak truthfully about them. But always do that with humility and charity. Remember, every single one of us can be wrong, and we are quite frequently. So humility is absolutely essential, and I think charity is essential because we never know the journey that someone is on or what struggles or what uh, even great evils have led them to the point that they are at standing in front of you. No matter how toxic they might be, in their remonstrations with you, just remember there is a human person here. And a big fundamental part of the Judeo-Christian natural law tradition is the dignity of the human person. They are an image bearer. They bear the image of the divine God. And so when we look at them, we are looking at a sacred thing. And their human dignity demands our respect. And it's not dependent upon agreement. It just isn't. Their human dignity and whether or not we respect it is not dependent on whether or not we agree with them. If they have the right ideas, then they have human dignity. If they have the right ideas, then I will respect their human dignity. No, that's a toxic lie that's in our culture right now. But that's not our truth at all. Our truth and the truth is that human persons have human dignity regardless, and we all have an obligation to never deliberately do harm, to never deliberately threaten, to never deliberately disrespect or abuse the human dignity of another human being. Um, and last but not least, I would say that you have to remember to live not by lies. I've got a whole episode on live not by lies if you want to hear more about that famous essay from Alexander Solzhenitsyn and why it was so important. Go and listen to that episode. Actually read the essay out. And so it's, it's, it's not a long essay, well worth your time. So go and listen to the Live Not By Lies episode if you want more about the backstory there. But the, in a nutshell, the idea is this. You might not always be able to stand up and speak the truth out loud, but one thing that you can always do and you must never stop doing, even if you can't vocalize out loud in a moment, let's say a meeting at work or a staff meeting or a PTA meeting or church meeting or whatever it is, you can still and you should keep refusing to live the lie. You can leave the room. You can refuse to buy in. That, that is, now, yes, that, even that is increasingly under threat. The authoritarian nature of what is happening more and more, you know, there's a certain, we're coming for you about all of this. But still, in, in most and in a lot of situations, we have the ability to live not by lies, to refuse to follow the lie, to buy into it. We can actually in our own internal culture, our interior life, our family life, our relationships, our work dealings, we can actually live goodness, truth, 
and beauty. And that means, of course, and this is quite a key point, we have to get our own house in order. Um, you know, Jordan Peterson has talked a lot about this, and it's I think it's quite an important principle, this idea of people who talk about solving the world's economic problems and solving the issues of the world, but, um, you know, they can't even balance their own checkbook or they don't even make their own bed. And they expect other people to conform to their ideas because their ideas are going to save the world. Well, in actual fact, and if, if you're a Christian, you will know this in the Gospels. Jesus talks about this important principle of if you are faithful in small things, then you will be trusted with the big things. In other words, that, that there's, it's quite profound what Christ is saying here, that you are building into your life certain virtue by the what seem like mundane and ordinary things. But that virtue will actually allow you to be trustworthy with the big issues. That's why for me, for a long time I've said this and I've understood this thanks to the upbringing, very, very humble and actually financially poor upbringing from my parents, two humble people who were good people though. My father grappled with schizophrenia for most of his adult life. My mother who and, and father who struggled through poverty and they were not highly educated people. They were not well off. We were a very poor family. But they were good people, and at times courageously so. And they just, the simple things were lived and lived well in our house. It truly was a, a Christian home. It wasn't perfect, plenty of imperfections. But that taught me some important things. And you, those things, and for, this is why for a long time I've said that it's no good having politicians who claim that they can be trusted with the, the reins of power in your country if they've been caught in personal moral scandals. Probably the most common one would be something like adultery, where they say, oh, no, that's my private life, and what I do in private has no bearing upon my public role. It's utter nonsense, because that private life is a reflection of who the person truly is when no one else is looking. It's a, it's a truer reflection of what virtues are present or not present in their life. And if they're not present there, they are not suddenly going to magically be present in their public role. So it's so fundamentally important that your own house is in order. We live in a culture of outward-looking finger-pointing. And what we need to do is reject that. Because the Judeo-Christian norm is in a culture of inward-looking examination of conscience and examination of, am I living out this transcendent moral order? Do I need to repent? Do I need to turn back? What do I need to do to strive to be more faithful to this? So we need to get our own house in order and reject that culture of sort of outward-looking finger-pointing, start looking inwards and start actually working hard on the most important project of all, which is our own interior life and our own life, and ensure that that is in order. And that will put us in a position to actually aid others who come across our path, who are falling victim to this cultural crisis, and who are in need of a guiding light. You can't be that guiding light if, if you don't have anything deep to offer, if your own house is not in order. Yeah, leave that crumbling wreck. Come into my crumbling wreck. The veneer's great, but what's inside is terrible, right? So it's it's so, so important. I think that's all I want to say. 
gosh, it's gone on a lot longer than I thought. But hey, you've got your money's worth out of this free episode. Don't forget, if you want an extra episode of the Dispatches podcast every single week, then become a patron at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia with $5 or more per month, and that will give you exclusive access to a weekly patrons-only episode of the Dispatches. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, live by goodness, truth, and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. The Dispatches podcast is a production of Left Foot Media. If you enjoyed this show, then please help us to ensure that more of this great content keeps getting made by becoming a patron of our work at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time on The Dispatches. Thank you.